0: Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast.
1: I could not copy Bernstein, I could not copy Karajan, I could not copy anybody to look like them. And sometimes you learn by copying and then make it your own. But sometimes you don't have that luxury, so you just have to learn from people and
0: do your own thing. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to Piano Whisperer. It has been several weeks since our last episode, and I'm super excited today to have with us Lina Gonzalez-Granados. Lena is making an exciting impact in the world of conducting today. Praised for her attention to orchestral colors and the ability to create lightning changes in tempo, meter, and effect, Lina Gonzalez-Granados has firmly established herself as a talented conductor of opera and symphonic repertoire, including contemporary music. In the fall of 2019, she started her new appointments as Conducting Fellow of the Philadelphia Orchestra and Seattle Symphony, and within 2017 through 2019, Lena also served as the Taki Concordia Fellow, a position created by Maestro Marin Alsop to foster entrepreneurship and talent to female conductors. This current 2019-2020 season has included and will include guest appearances with the Philadelphia Orchestra, Seattle Symphony, San Diego Symphony, Stanford Symphony, San Francisco Conservatory Orchestra, and the Orchestra Sinfonica del Principado de Asturias. Gonzalez Granados was named one of the contestants selected for La Maestra competition, which was scheduled to take place at the Paris Philharmonie in March 2020. Recent guest appearances have also included the Tulsa Opera as well as the Orchestra Sinfonica Nacional de Colombia and Philharmonica de Medellin. She has been the assistant conductor for the Chicago Symphony at the Ravinia Festival, London Philharmonic Carnegie Hall's National Youth Orchestra of the United States, Orchestra of the Americas, and has worked as cover conductor of the Nashville Symphony, worked with artists such as Yefim Bronfman, Pinchas Zuckerman, and Giancarlo Guerrero. This season, she will be working as cover conductor for Zuby Meta at the LA Philharmonic, Yannick Netzet Seguin, and Thomas Djoskart, among other artists. Lina is a staunch proponent of the music of Latin American composers, work that earned her recognition as one of the Latino 30 Under 30 by El Mundo newspaper in 2016. In 2014, she founded the UNITAS Ensemble, a Boston-based chamber orchestra specializing in Latin American music. Her work with the UNITAS Ensemble has yielded multiple world premieres, as well as the creation and release of the UNITAS Ensemble album Estaciones, recorded alongside the Latin Grammy-winning Quarteto Latino Americano. Born and raised in Cali, Colombia, Lena made her conducting debut in 2008 with the Youth Orchestra of Bellas Artes in Cali. She earned her master's degree in conducting and a graduate diploma in choral conducting from New England Conservatory and is pursuing her doctoral degree in orchestral conducting at Boston University. She has won numerous prestigious awards, including the 4th Chicago Symphony Orchestra Sir George Solti International Conducting Competition, her principal mentors include Marin Alsop, Bernard Haitink, Bramwell Tovey, and Charles Peltz. That is such an impressive resume, <laughs> hey, Lena. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to have you.
1: Thank you, Ben. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, it's our privilege. And after learning about you, you made me want to give more exposure to Colombian classical music, too. I want to provide a backdrop for your early years. You grew up in Cali, Colombia, and your parents were doctors. During your growing up years, Colombia was in the midst of a very complex armed conflict with multiple groups fighting each other for multiple reasons. I don't think most Americans understand how intense that conflict was for the Colombian people. Five million civilians were forced from their homes between 1985 and 2012. 16.9% of the Colombian population were direct victims of the conflict. And it was in this environment that you began your journey as a person and artistically. Can you tell us what impact the Colombian conflict had on you growing up and on your development, both personally and artistically?
1: Ben, thank you so much for the question and for this one in particular. I am 34 years old and the conflict is around 60 plus years old. So I was born in the armed conflict. We don't call it civil war, but like that's the right term as you really correctly stated. And so compared to my fellow Colombians, I had it relatively easy I want to say mm-hmm. because my parents gave me good opportunities for education but at the same time violence was so rampant and especially the guerrilla conflict started to become more urban or closer to home that it really forced my parents to think creatively in terms of raising me and they really kept me indoors. Most of the time we wouldn't go out to, for like dinner on weekends. We wouldn't even go to church sometimes because it was just incredibly scary and mildly probable that we could get kidnapped in a church in my city or like people would be taken out of restaurants, schools, from like the bus schools and everything.
0: That's inconceivable.
2: Yeah.
1: Now it's not like that. I have to say we have made so many strides into that sense, but that's that was like my teenager years. I wouldn't go out, and then that's why I started playing piano because my parents needed to protect me, keep me occupied, keep me stimulated mentally because like one can do so much. And that gave me really good skills of resilience as well and... You know, in these times of COVID, I can tell you that I'm not having a like a bad time. Mm-hmm. I'm actually having a good time at my house. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things. But yeah, definitely my parents did a lot to keep me protected and music was a way to be free mentally. Yeah. Like that, physically, I couldn't do. You know, my parents' colleagues. My parents are doctors, and some of their colleagues died in captivity. You know, and that is something that makes makes something strike your core yes. for your beloved. So it, it wasn't easy.
0: I am sure it was not easy, and it must have. Well, I'm going to ask a question later that that captures some of this, but it must have actually made you fairly focused on what you were trying to accomplish and at the same time as much as you're afraid but still keeping an open hand because you realize you don't know what tomorrow brings that must have been formative in some way
1: no totally totally i mean at that moment if you don't know any better you make this normal like normal life as happy as possible i cannot tell you i mean it's not that we lived in fear my parents were really good on creating like a good atmosphere but definitely looking back i remember the first year living abroad with my parents visiting me
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i remember i used to live three blocks away from new england conservatory and for my dad it was inconceivable as you say that i would go out with my computer at 11 p.m to go visit a friend And sometimes, especially my dad and my mom, that they are walking like on the street and they feel so liberated here and they feel like in such peace because, you know, you don't know who's going to be behind you. I mean, again, this to be said that things have changed a lot and we made a lot of good things with the peace treaty. And so things are way better than when I was growing up.
0: Sure. That's such a rich history. Like you say, you grew up in it, so it was what you knew. But folks who haven't grown up in it, I think if they relocated to an area that was enduring that, it would be absolutely and profoundly shocking.
1: Absolutely.
0: You mentioned in a PBS Colores TV interview that music chose you when you were five years old. And you told a story about how emotionally impacted you were when your grandfather played Beethoven's Fifth Symphony for you. Can you tell us more about that experience and why it made you feel as though you needed to pursue music?
1: In my family, there were no musicians. And hearing that music and hearing the extreme drama and extreme colors and the emotional pull when you were five years old, it was overwhelming to grasp but at the same time it's it was automatic it like draw my entire attention in a way that i don't think i've had in anything that's when i started thinking wow like this is the music that i like
0: that's pretty happy for five
1: it is and you know what it's even I, i think it's even heavier when Anything in your upbringing really doesn't speak classical music. More than those is that my grandfather had and a couple of books, but I mean, they were doctors, they liked Colombian music, music from the, I don't know, the countryside, and it was really far away. So I was kind of a precocious kid, learned, like, I learned how to. Read at I don't know like at two I was already reading and when I was at at five years old I was like reading like full like newspapers that was like what my <laughs> like preschool would put me yeah. it was crazy so, so so they would like they would say okay Lina go and do this uh, Beethoven and I would get bored really easy I have to say when yeah. I was little so that was the first time that my parents said like okay this kid actually <laughs> Can focus heavily for something like that. And that's how my music journey started.
0: Yeah, it's starting to make sense now. Okay.
1: (laughs) So, (laughs) exactly. um,
0: (laughs) So, one of the other things you said in that interview, which I really enjoyed, and I'll post that interview in the show notes, is that music allows people to express extreme emotions. And I think as human beings, we all have these desperate moments and times when we are not at all consolable. And music has the ability to touch and express those moments. Does conducting an orchestra increase that profound nature of this emotional expression for you? And can you talk about what it's like to conduct a piece of music that you love for a receptive audience?
1: Absolutely. Yes, I remember when they asked me that in that interview at PBS... One of the biggest tragedies of human nature now is that we don't know how to express like really deep thread of emotions outside the physical and the the primal thing. And music or reading or painting or writing, it's a way to just unload all those feelings, all those facets between the dark and the non-dark feelings that you have and it's how it's an outlet to express it in a different way. So that's why I think it's so important to learn a craft that makes this human outlet, like outlet or connection. That's, that's hard in a way. Yeah. Coming back to the orchestra, it's one of the most magical moments when you are able to communicate to someone that kind of journey. Because the medium is the music and the feelings are just there. So I think the perfect community is when everybody can understand, audience can feel the pain, can feel the happiness, can feel the joy that you are feeling through or the composer is feeling. It's like a um, theater piece, you mm-hmm. know? Like You can read it or you can memorize it and, and act it and live it. So the, the biggest actors are the ones that make this music their own, but at the end it's the music, the journey of the composer. So when all of this is understandable for someone, at least one person in the audience or two people, you know, like I always say, the biggest success is if it's, of course, the majority of the audience, but at the same time, if someone can get into that state of mind that they understand the feeling That's a magical moment.
0: That is a magical moment. And I can remember my own journey when the light bulb went on and music illuminated a feeling that I had. And I thought, I've never been able to express that any other way, but through that music, that's it. I don't know how to put words on it, but that music is, that is it. That's what I'm feeling in life.
1: Because some words are not enough. Right. And when words are not enough, the outlets become different, you know. Sometimes the pain is so much that people go like become physical and everything. It's just it's more than than the rationalization. It's when it goes beyond that music can help you. Same unhappy, for example, is never gonna be the same as feeling happy.
0: Right, it's happy is a one-dimensional word.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's cool. Okay. well, thank you for that. <laughs> and I want to talk about Latin American music. In general, Latin American music is multicultural in and of itself. There are deep influences from many ethnic groups, the indigenous peoples, the Kalina and the Kim Baja and the cheap jazz mm-hmm. but also from Africa, Spain, Portugal, and, and many more. So there's definitely not one definitive style of music. And as you said in the recent Seattle Times article, Latin American musicians are not afraid to blur the lines. And so when you talk about your personal love of Latin American music and composers, can you tell us what you
1: love the most about it? Well, Latin America's population at the moment is 600 million. And then we have 200 million Brazilians and we had 800 ethnic groups, indigenous wow, groups. Wow,
0: 800. So
1: that's a lot of, yeah, a lot too, unwind wind in just one style. So what I love about Latin American music is that allows me to wear really different hats I can explore so many facets of myself that I didn't know I had but I feel them there is some music that I never knew but then it's like it's in my subconscious just because just by seeing the the piece's like oh okay I understand it
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know and so it's a lot of cultural baggage that I can explore so I never get bored. There is always something new and there is like always like a masterpiece that hasn't been written yet. Mm -hmm. This is a gross generalization, but Latin American concert music, orchestral music can be divided into what was before 1930s and after 1930s. 1930s, talking about music that was really diverse, right? Mm -hmm. One is extremely folkloric and nationalistic. The other is like a modernist and avant-garde. And then we have one that is like trying to imitate and honor the uh, European hegemony. But then after 1930, when we go into this Pan-American treaties where Latin America becomes important in economical terms This music travels to North America and beyond. The music that has been written in the last 20 years is extremely different, and there is so much to explore. I think what I like most is its it's extreme color and variety.
0: Yeah, extreme color. That sums it up. In 2016, you were recognized as one of the Latino 30 Under 30 by El Mundo newspaper. You mentioned that one of your proudest moments was the formation of your own orchestra, UNITAS Ensemble in Boston. I took time to listen to UNITAS Ensemble on a program from 2015 called 502 Sessions, and I have to admit I was Genuinely, I was genuinely blown away. It was beautiful music and it definitely blurred the lines. It was orchestral, uh, of course, but it was also very, very intimate. The instrumentation was unique. The harmonies could be described as modern. You know, there seemed to be some improvisation. If, and if I closed my eyes, I could have imagined anything from Beethoven or Segovia, Joe Beam and Miles Davis, all at the same time, I could never have qualified it stylistically. And so I guess my question is, is this experience that I had listening to this blend of instrumentation and style unique to Colombian classical music, or how does Colombian classical music differ from other Latin American music?
1: Compared to other Latin American countries, I think it will always depend on how the colony absorb or demolish or uh, vanquish our indigenous tribes. Wow. Depending on the countries and how well the um, culturally the people that was living in the time emerge with the Spanish. That's how I think it really uh, mixes. In Colombia, in the case of Colombia, geographically, we have in South America, the only country that has the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. You know, like Central America, Panama, and that, that is Central America. Sure. But in South America, is the only country.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in that sense, that was at the moment, Panama uh, belonged to Colombia. So we had the canal You know, like people would come there and this interchange of the business was different. The trade, how the Spanish people did it was different. And not only that, we have the two oceans. We have the Andes as well. We have the Amazon. So it's really, really varied. And inside of that, it's in the equator. You know, it's a tropical country, but with a lot of facets and in that sense, geographically and the Spanish integration, the music is really different. I think at this moment we are more than other country, maybe Brazil, but more than other country, we are embracing more the sounds of the Afro Colombian mm. culture. Mm-hmm. And from the Pacific, which is different from the Atlantic, and that, that gives a, a particular sound. And because the Pacific Colombian was kind of isolated and still really, really poor, there are some of the music that remains almost untouched. That is what we infuse into classical music and gives a different sound. That It really does.
0: Yeah, I had never heard anything... Quite with that blend. I listened to an awful lot of Brazilian music over the years, but when I listened to your music, I was hearing combinations that work so beautifully together that I had never even imagined, really. So, is there a piece of music you would like to share on this broadcast? And can you tell us
1: about it? Absolutely. So, one of the pieces that I have enjoyed greatly to conduct and to record. It's called The Two Seasons of the Caribbean Tropics. It's a piece by the Venezuelan composer Paul Desen, and it's a violin concerto for a string orchestra and harpsichord. Mm. So why is this a great combination? First of all, it's a direct response to The Four Seasons of Vivaldi, so the sounds are neo-baroque. How we listen to it, but we don't. We don't have four seasons in the in the tropics. So, it's, <laughs> yeah. so we have dry. Yeah. Like dry to like dry and summer to winter. So the first part of the of the piece is winter that goes to, from little droplets of water to mudslide. Oh, wow! You know, it's like from the extreme, and then in the summer. It's like from mildly hot to burning, literally, the seasons, the Vivaldi seasons. So this piece is in the summer movements. It's called on Tostado. And what I like about this piece is that this is a cumbia, a Colombian cumbia from the Atlantic, which is really close to Venezuela. And he uses the strings to create these sounds. And it's really like... I imagine a piece by Gabriel Garcia Marquez should sound, hmm. you know, the the magical realism, because all of the sounds are sounds that you would think, oh, this is a violin sound, but you never imagined that, that the four seasons could live in the same. It's
0: not conventional.
1: Exactly. So it's the same. It's like they come alive into different forms, like in magical realism. So that's why, I love this piece to introduce um, Colombian music and Venezuelan music and Latinos because he is Venezuelan, but he emigrated to France. That's where he studied. And then he lives in Boston. So he has gone all over the world. Like he's like from, like myself, from the diaspora. And then he encompasses European music with Colombian music, with Latin American music, with the Baroque. So it's just what i envision latin america is right now which is a melting pot yeah
0: a true um, yeah
1: that it's just boiling every day and boiling with a lot of anger and frustration but also with a lot of beauty so that's why i would love to share this piece with you
0: Well, let's listen to it right now, and before we do, I just want to thank Classic Pianos also, Classic Pianos, for sponsoring Piano Whisperer and making it possible. But right now, let's listen to this beautiful music. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure everybody could hear the complexity and just the emotion of it. And as you discussed, familiar instrument sounds that aren't necessarily used conventionally. And I just want to encourage more people to listen to your music. I will have links in the show notes where people can find out more and listen. So, okay. You then left Colombia. You came to the U.S., You studied at some of the finest institutions with some remarkably accomplished and generous people. You now find yourself working with some of the top orchestras in the U.S. in an industry where fewer than 15% of the U.S. orchestral conductors are female, and fewer than 10% identify themselves as Latino or Hispanic. And this is just such an amazing accomplishment, which is why you've been so highly respected and recognized So, since the beginning of your music journey, have you always had a strong sense of what you wanted to do, or have you been surprised by your trajectory at all?
1: I definitely knew what I wanted to do, but yes, it's a surprise how it has arrived. In what way? Well, when you are dreaming, when you're like when I was a little, when I was younger, maybe not little, but younger, and studying in my undergrad. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to a conduct orchestra. that That was like a clear path for me. And then when I started applying for schools and everything, it started to become a little bit more uh, real that it's just a few people that actually make it into a business. Yes, I know. So for me, it's like being a conductor and being an artist is not the business of music. They're kind of separated. I think when you merge the two of them is that when things happen then i was like okay it's going to be hard what can i do because i'm going to arrive i don't know when but i'm just going to do it i never like i think that's part of my the way that my parents raised me they were like yeah you can do whatever mm-hmm. and it is that sometimes it, it can backfire <laughs> a lot but they were always like there and the thing that I realized is that in order to arrive to a place like, I don't know, Philadelphia, Chicago, now that I'm working with Moti or Seattle is that being the same or being trying to compare myself to my peers, uh, wasn't going to cut it. So I always had like my side hustle. So even in the school in my teachers wouldn't teach me Latin American music, but I loved it so much. So from the beginning I was like, okay, I'm just gonna study my scores from apart. And then when I was at school I was like, okay, I'm going to found my orchestra. And always having like a different, like a parallel trajectory that could enrich me and make me super happy while I was looking for those opportunities. And then when they came, it really was the added value of the other things that I knew that position me in a different way.
0: This happiness factor is a consistent theme I've heard from people, like doing what you're most excited about and pursuing it. That doesn't mean that you don't pursue other things as well. And I was going to ask you, were there disappointing things along the way when you had to really purposely stay resolved to continue onward? It sounds like you had this resolve, but were there things that kind of threw you off along the way where you just had to purposely get back on and on track?
1: Well, the conducting business is full of rejection and getting, it's most of the rejection that I think defines you. Mm. You could turn it as an opportunity or you can just quit. So yes, I cannot deny that it was hard to see it. But I don't know, really entering my, how do I say this? I learned from a really early point in the States that I could not compare myself. Otherwise, it would have been really, really sad. So I just have to turn off the white noise and just try to do whatever I could. And that was, for me, the measure of success. It wasn't to conduct the Philadelphia Orchestra when I was little. It was just, okay, I'm just going to conduct one piece. If they allowed me to conduct at least one piece without saying, that is going to be my success. And then little by little things got better and better.
0: Yeah. I mean, you are definitely unique. You've had a unique background and unique upbringing and your exposure to different sounds and you found a way to be you within this highly competitive environment. Like you say, putting on the white noise and just doing what you do. I I find that so inspiring. You've been asked many times what advice you'd like to offer young people. And you've been, in my opinion, quite poetic in your answers. You've been clear that everyone has something to offer and that we need to be careful not to compare ourselves to others, which you just shared. But the way you put it, we all have a choice, either be a shadow of other people or bring your own light and ride your own path.
1: Yes, actually, that's how I say it.
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's why I say it's super poetic. So can you elaborate on this as it pertains to young artists trying to find their own voices?
1: Yes, it was an advice that my grandmother used to tell me all the time. I was kind of a rebel. And I would love to do the things my way, even, <laughs> like even the little things, you know, like I wanted to dress certain way and everything. And yeah, my mother was, I want to say she wasn't getting frustrated, but it was like, oh, Lina, you see the other girls, they dress like that. Why don't you dress like that? To see if I could get inspired. <laughs> and my grandmother would always say, you need to write your own path. You need to be the voice and not the echo. And that stuck with me, basically because when I was growing up and my, I don't know, 19, 20, 21 years, mm-hmm. I only had one role model, mm. which was a Mexican girl. Her name was Alondra de la Parra, and she was getting a lot of traction because she was a Latin American conductor here. And it was the only person that looked like me, mm. you know? So how can I, I mean... I could not copy Bernstein, I could not copy Karajan, I could not copy anybody to look like them. And you, sometimes you learn by copying and then make it your own, yeah. but sometimes you don't have that luxury. So you just have to learn from people and do your own thing. Yeah, And I think... It's better that you take everything with humility, with, I don't know, and with a grain of salt, and then you really choose to make your own decisions as an artist. Otherwise, it becomes like a water paint that has more water than color.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. So many images.
1: That is your product. Yeah. That's literally your product. Or like if you put like a a scanner of a picture, it's not like you're the photographer you're just like copying it. It doesn't make the same. The light doesn't come exactly the same. So I don't think it's as poetic as you see. It's actually really practical. Yeah. I mean, you cannot make the music of a recording. It just doesn't come.
0: But it goes against the grain of conformity. And
1: Absolutely.
0: More water than color. I love that. You've given me so many images. Oh, man. <laughs> but, but that's true. And I think people have to trust, though, that there is something valuable in themselves. I think most people, the reason they try to be like other people is they innately assume that the other person has more to offer, right? You compare everyone else's strengths to your own weaknesses, and that's that's a danger. And so you have to trust that, hey, there's only one me, right? And there are a lot of copycats.
1: Exactly.
0: It's it's hard.
1: And also, if you make a mistake that it's deliberately coming from your own decisions, mm-hmm. you can learn from it.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You can learn from it. If it's a copy of something, you would never know
2: That's true. why
1: it works or why it doesn't. So, yes, I mean, I think learning with the orchestra, like founding Unitas, was like one of the greatest learning experience because it has given me a lot to think about in that sense like nobody could help me yeah that's why i was like okay i had to make decisions really soon about who i wanted to be yeah and that's why i always say like follow your path it's good to have role models but you have to honor yourself first
0: yeah and not be afraid of yourself i think that's part of it too
1: being afraid is not bad, but if you add guilt mm. or shame into that, being afraid is when it becomes so unhealthy, and that's when you just, like, go into a safe space, because it's easier to copy and interpret. I mean, for me, like, if we go to interpretations, it's easier yeah. to just live into somebody else's fears and happiness and everything. Mm-hmm. You're just hiding behind it.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. You're not being vulnerable, right? Which is what people really ultimately want to see. Yes.
1: Openness. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
0: Is there anything else that you'd like to share that I haven't covered? Any projects that you'd like to discuss? And how can people find out more about you, Lena?
1: Oh, thank you. Well, you know, these times of COVID, I actually have turned myself into... Teaching young conductors, and I have now a group on the internet called the Conductors Collective. Oh, cool. We teach webinars that talk about leadership only, like leadership for conductors, and we talk about score study but related to leadership. And the beautiful thing about this group, we have every Wednesday, we have around 150 people.
0: Mm, That's big.
1: It is big, but, you know, the beautiful thing about it is that for example, Marin has come, uh, Yannick uh, from the Met has come. Wow. I co-founded this group with a friend because we wanted to give back and there is no audition, nothing. Then information becomes free and equitable for everyone. So you see people from Kenya, oh wow! people from Australia, people tuning from Colombia, from Bolivia, from Poland, Berlin, whatever you name it, every single state from the States learning that this information about being vulnerable and everything, it's something that nobody teaches you at school and it's free for all. So I'm really proud about it. Some of those people who would never come to the conservatories here can get that kind of relationship one-on-one with a great artist. So that is my project. I've been working on that. I'm really proud. And how can you learn a little bit more? I have a website and it's linagonzalesgranados.com or unitasensemble.com.
0: I'll put both of those in the show notes so that people can find them. Well, I find you super inspirational. Thank you. (laughs) And (laughs) I know it was hard to schedule, but I thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I also want to thank all the listeners for taking the time to listen. Grateful for the support. Thank you to Classic Pianos, as mentioned previously. You can find us on all the major platforms, and uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, pianowhisperer.podcast. Also, our website, of course, is pianowhisperer.org, where you can listen to past podcasts. So we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.